It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Tansi, hi, hi, and welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And this is the beginning of our new season here on Moment of Truth, and our third season, I might add. So it is fitting that joining us is a very special and sought-after guest, and we're pleased to have her with us, Michelle Latimer. A little about Michelle. Uh, she is an award-winning filmmaker, producer, writer, and activist, and she is currently uh, show-running and directing the scripted series Trickster, adapted from Eden Robinson's best-selling Son of a Trickster trilogy, and has completed the production of a feature documentary, Inconvenient Indian, an adaptation of Thomas King's book of the same name. In 2016, she chronicled the Standing Rock occupation protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline as part of the eight-part Indigenous Resistance series Rise, for which she was the showrunner and director. Rise was awarded the Canadian Screen Award for Best Documentary Series in 2018. And her short film, Nuka, Field of Vision, premiered at TIFF in 2017, uh, screened at the 2018 Sundance in Berlin Film Festival, and to date, she has directed multiple short films, including the Sundance Jury Award, Honorable Mention, and international film making for her animated short film, Choke. In 2020, Michelle was named the inaugural artist-in-residence at the Sundance Institute Screenwriting Labs and was awarded the Chicken and Egg Breakthrough Award, and that's a prize given to five international filmmakers for their work in social justice filmmaking. Michelle's Métis and Algonquin heritage informs her filmmaking perspective, and much of her work is dedicated to the pursuit of Indigenous rights and sovereignty. Michelle, Ani Bourgeau, and welcome. Thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure. Uh, you know, in that opening, and and uh, something that I just say about the the that you, you your filmmaking perspective comes from, you know, your indigenous rights and sovereignty. That wasn't always. You, you didn't start out that way. I understand. No, I started uh, actually in acting. I was an actor for many years before I decided to go behind the camera. But even then, before you went behind the camera, you weren't necessarily looking. Uh, I guess specifically to be an activist in that role. Oh, yeah, that is true, I would say. It is? Um, oh, okay. I think for any young filmmaker, part of that process is defining and also exploring what is your voice? What do you have to say in the world? Mm. And mm. Um, that took some time. And it was really with Choke, my animated film. Um, it was my second uh, short film. Um, the previous one was an experimental film that I'd won as part of like a, a filmmaking award at the Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival. Mm -hmm. uh, but the second film, Choke, was really where I went back into my community. And um, I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and I was looking at doing a documentary based on the Dennis Cromarty High School students who were doing some amazing art uh, through their art class. And it was there that I met a young man named Kyle Morisot, who was the grandson of Norval Morisot. Mm. Uh, but Kyle was um, tragically one of the, uh, one of the children who um, was found in the McIntyre River. Um, mm. I guess the story made famous by Tanya Talega's book, Seven mm. Fallen Feathers. And when I learned of his passing, um, it just changed everything for me. At that time, we didn't know the stories that have since come through the media. Mm -hmm. And I just felt that I needed to honor that young man and that story. And so Choke became basically my expression of what was happening in the community I grew up in. And it was the first time I told a story that was that close to me. Mm. 
Great. Well, Inconvenient Indian uh, takes us to the mind of, of course, Thomas King, and he's one of the world's foremost Indigenous intellectuals and one of our greatest storytellers. And uh, it's inspired by his stinging bestseller, of course, The Inconvenient Indian, uh, and and the film uh, journey uh, uh, is across the continent to explore uh, ways Indigenous peoples continue to inconvenience colonial states with their existence <laughs> and <laughs> resistance, uh, of course. And that... Uh, comes through very much in the film. Uh, so congratulations, first of all, on the film. Thank you. And um, so why did you, why did you, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's kind of obvious to say why, why you, you wanted to do this, but why did you want to do this? I had just come off doing Rise, which was really looking, I mean, I spent nine months in Standing mm. Rock before the occupation took place. So when it was mm. just a small resistance camp of about a dozen people into the heights of what we know standing, the images we saw Standing Rock to be, which the, you know, the armed forces and rubber bullets mm. and snipers mm. on the hill. And so I think coming off of that, I really had to examine like, why am I telling these stories and what kind of reach? And I'd never made a film that reached so many people as I did with those two Standing Rock films as part of the mm. Rise series. And mm. it made me see the power that filmmaking can have, but I wanted to take a step back and not, not simply follow a story in a newsworthy type of way. I wanted mm. to really be able to use the form of cinema to express cinematically but also poetically some of these ideas more in a philosophical mm. or an essay approach mm. and so when Thomas's book was brought to me I felt that this was an opportunity to really do that and it was kind of a quieter more meditative more thoughtful approach to similar themes to what I was um but in a, a different way of, of looking mm. at the work than mm. what I was doing with Rise. And of course, Thomas is in the the film, and he narrates it. Uh, and you know, I found it interesting because he talks about history, and he talks about uh, that it's stories. Basically, it's you know, history is just stories. And I find it interesting that that's what the film is. The film is a is is several stories within the main story. That's right. That you're being shown. Yeah, I, and I think I really wanted to look at. Um, well, to homage uh, oral storytelling from our culture mm. and also the circular way that stories are told in our culture. When you sit and mm. listen to an elder, it's not always very clear exactly the point <laughs> of the story. That is for mm. you to decipher. And so there's a very active, engaging accountability on the listener as much as there is on the storyteller. Mm. You know, And I, I think that that's a really important aspect of our storytelling culture. And I wanted to do that through this. I also felt that there's so many people coming together in this film to tell a unified story. It's not one person's story and this is their account. It's many, many. And then that tells a communal story that's larger for, for all of us. And that's what I was going for in mm. that approach. And, um, you know, even even visually, it's a story, uh, you know, as you're taken through this, uh, it's a it's a an actual uh, physical journey that that Thomas is on, as we see by the end of the film, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is kind of cool. But I, I really, I, I did have a bit of a chuckle at the in the opening uh, few minutes of the film. Oh, um, do you mean when the uh, 
the young the war, young warrior crests yes. the mountain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I always knew. So if you look at Thomas's book, you'll see that there's um, um, um a warrior in a headdress sort of looking over at a steamship. Mm. And I always thought that was such an arresting image and it said a lot and encapsulated the themes of the book quite well. And I was thinking, well, what's our version of that? Then we mm. went to Montana to film the recreation of uh, the Battle of mm. Little Bighorn or Custer's right. Last Stand on the Crow Reservation. Mm -hmm. And that young man is actually one of the performers in the recreation yeah yep. and i said would you mind doing this for me and he was like, absolutely and we got him to ride his horse and crest over the uh the valley which actually is the exact place where custer's uh, last stand took place it's in the national park there and mm. uh and then we cgi'd the effects the skyline <laughs> of toronto there <laughs> yeah yeah that was great um it, and it you you know you weren't expecting that at all of course and it, it looked like we were going to be in some sort of a period piece that uh you know so it was great well done thank you um really really nicely done by the way the film really lovely uh, the way it was put together so congratulations once again on that thank you very much um you know there are some some key moments in the film um that that it hits you with that it leaves you with and you know one of the things is is of course when thomas says you know he, he talks about well what do indians want um and of course he says that's the wrong question um, and there are, there are, of course, we don't want to give everything away about the film and, and about the story. We want people to both read the book and, and actually uh, see the film. But I guess um, I, I thought that was, you know, that was interesting. And, and it kind of makes you think about a number of things when that question is put to you uh, as, as someone watching the film. But also, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering about, did you, did you guys discuss at all about the word Indians? Um, that's a really interesting, so it's kind of two ideas, I think. Um, I want to circle back to this idea that you have about um, what do Indians want, but the, mm. the actual terminology Indians is one that um, Thomas uses facetiously, mm -hmm. or it's not in the way that we know it to be in, in society. He's using it as a way to express ideas. He yep. breaks the idea of the Indian as the representative Indian to what people looking from outside the community might think of indigenous people. And he breaks that down into three ideas in his book, the dead Indian, the live Indian and the legal Indian. Mm. And making the point that the dead Indian is what, you know, outsiders often that's their relationship. It's the cowboys and Indians Indian. It's the leathers mm -hmm. and feathers. It's this right. 19th century version of what an Indian should look like. And it's and it's a stereotype. That's why he's using the word Indian versus right. obviously we understand indigenous right. people and yep. Métis and um, First Nations and Inuit, you know, in this country. But he's more making a point of a philosophical idea of his yes. the themes and ideas in his book. Yes, and I appreciate you explaining that because I knew there was a reason behind why you chose to do that, um, and and why that was used throughout uh, throughout the film. Uh, you know, Thomas also uh, it, it states in there that nobody wants the Indian. Right? It's the idea. I really like that uh, that whole thing that was explained in there about it's really about the idea that that people mm -hmm. like because it's non-threatening, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It really takes you somewhere else and, and sort of takes you again into this storyline and into this journey that you're, you're being uh, uh, taken on throughout the film. Yeah, and when you spoke about um, the idea of, uh, of, like, history is not, it's not about, like, what do Indians want? Mm. It, it's interesting because the whole framing device of the film and of his book is to look at 
whose history is the one we've been taught? Whose history is the one, is, is history really just the one story that's sort of told? It's not a monolith, but mm -hmm. we're, I think we're in this time period now where we're looking at, yes, it's been, it, it's been the one singular story that's been written by settlers, told by settlers, and that's the story we're supposed to believe. But now we're kind of breaking into this time in, in, in culture where we realize there are many stories and many of these stories have not been told. And the time is now to tell them so that we move into the future in a different way. Mm -hmm. and, and then we have, of course, the, the other story that is being uh, given to us is the coyote story uh, in, in the film as well. But, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, we have another uh, series to talk about, the Trickster series. So we don't want to use up all our time on, on this one. We, I think we've, we've uh, managed to uh, pique people's interest and hopefully they'll, they'll uh, get to see the film. Now, the film itself uh, had a, its, its uh, premiere over the weekend, but it's, it's also going to be shown um, uh, coming up this week as well yes it will be there's a physical screening um on the 17th as well as a digital screening that people can access through the toronto film festival website at any point if you sign up for a ticket for the digital screening you can watch you have 24 hours to watch it from the time you uh, push play cool that's uh, so the, the physical screening is thursday uh, uh, 5 p.m at the uh, tiff bell lightbox theater and uh, so that's great so people can can check it out there and appreciate for what you just said as well um just before we move on, though, um, who, who is this film for, would you say? What, what were we thinking of it as a, you know, the audience? Well, I made the film for my community, but I've all, and, and, but it's a very different watching experience when you're an Indigenous person mm. taking in this mm -hmm. film. It's mm -hmm. also a, an experience for non-Indigenous people because I feel like it's a provocation to be accountable into. Mm. It's not enough to just say we acknowledge the past. It, it's an acknowledgement with an understanding that our actions moving into the future matter. And it's not about just educating ourselves, but it's about doing something differently. And in, ter in terms of how this country repairs its relationships with indigenous peoples. Great. I guess that's the, the takeaway you're looking for as well. So uh, I was going to ask you that next, but that's, that's great. We'll be right back with more right after this. So don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And... Uh, our guest here on our first show back of our third series is uh, Michelle Latimer. Uh, Michelle's entree into the film business, as she said off the top, was an actor. And over an eight-year uh, span, she made uh, her mark as a series regular on Moose TV and uh, Paradise Falls and Blackstone. But uh, as you, she also mentioned uh, earlier... Uh, it took a six-minute uh, stop-motion animated short film about a young man uh, fresh from the, the res searching for his identity in the midst of urban isolation to change her trajectory, and that is uh, Choke. And uh, Latimer's directorial debut uh, garnered a, a Genie nomination and won the honorable mention uh, at Sundance for the short film filming award uh, that she also wrote, directed, and produced. 
And uh, she's had other numerous nominations and awards uh, that followed that, uh, including the 2018 CSA for Best Documentary Program for Rise, as we mentioned, and the eight-part series Chronicle of the Standing Rock Occupation. Now, Trickster is, uh, is also something that she's uh, worked on. Uh, it's an irreverent coming-of-age story based on the best-selling novel, A Son of a Trickster by Eden Robinson, and starring newcomer Joel Ouellette. And uh, it was filmed on the traditional territories of the Hisla people in uh, Kitimat Village, B.C., as well as the Anishinaabek territory of Nipissing First Nation and Antone First Nation in Matawa, North Bay, Algonquin First Nation. It's produced by Latimer's production company Steel Films and Siena Films, Executive producers are Latimer, Tony Elliott, Sienna Films, and uh, also uh, Julia Serini. And a co-executive producer is uh, Penny uh, Gummerson. And Latimer co-wrote the series with Elliott and directed the six episodes. So uh, now, Michelle, that, uh, that's going to have uh, a premiere uh, trickster at the uh, Tiff Bell Lightbox, uh, I believe, tomorrow afternoon and online at the Bell Digital C- Cinema. That's right, yes. Tuesday. And the, uh, I guess, what is that? The 15th. <laughs> and then Wednesday night at 6 p.m. And, uh, and of, of course, uh, coming to CBC and CBC Jam starting in October on the 7th. Yes, that's right. Now, uh, having, having uh, you know, and this is a great series, I have to admit that uh, I didn't get to, to see every all the series, but I have to say the first thing is that, um, no, I'm not tripping, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that is the, the that is uh, what the talking ravens is the Jared <laughs> underneath. The yeah, yeah. And what a great way to end the first series, the opening series, because you really, of course, you're getting the whole story in the first part, and and getting the getting that setup of his life, what he's dealing with, and how he's basically trying to, I guess, deal with a lot of things, uh, the 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 shortcomings of a lot of other other people. But in, 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 in doing that, you know, the people around him, but, and he's trying to help a lot of other people out, but in doing so, he's, he's got his hands into a few things that aren't exactly the best uh, way to try and deal with those at the same time. And then, of course, we see his life sort of start to, to spiral downwards and fall apart. And that's when, uh, at the end of that, we see when he gets approached by the, the raven uh, who's, who starts speaking to him, and that's where you're left with this. But it's a, it's a great opening uh, uh, series uh, with a lot of great characters in it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, that's thanks to Eden Robinson. I loved her book, and I felt like the characters are people I knew in my own life, and it just resonated, popped off the page, and I thought this is the perfect material to make into a TV show. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's and as you say, it's it's filmed in uh, these three different locations. Um, now, how about how about uh, can you take us behind? Uh, you know, getting into this, uh, trying to find the the cast and and the crew and things, trying to to put that together for this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, this is the first time that an Indigenous author's work has been adapted for a mainstream network, and mm. having Indigenous directors, writers. Uh, most of the cast, Indigenous people on every department behind the scenes. Um, And so finding that cast was really the biggest challenge. Who are going to breathe life into these characters? 
and so we did a huge search across North America, everywhere from LA to Vancouver to Edmonton. And Joel Ouellette uh, was sent in a self-tape, the beauty of technology these days, um, along with hundreds, maybe thousands of young men. And, um, and his tape really stood out to us. And we traveled to Edmonton to do some callbacks. But he's actually from Medicine Hat, Alberta. But he came. Mm. He was 17 years old, came with his mom. And he auditioned. And it was, it was just undeniable. He was Jared. Yeah, that you know what you're right. <laughs> it's, it's true, and the camera loves him. Wow. Yeah, and he told me this funny story. He said, "You know, I was on my way the day before to drop my resume off. Um, before I got the call that I was cast, I was on my way to drop my resume off at Home Depot for a summer job. How <laughs> did your life ever change overnight?" <laughs> oh, that's great! What a story. That's fabulous. Uh, what What was his uh, his previous uh, work up to that point? Do you know? You know, he'd mostly done some training and sort of community acting classes and things like that and, and dance mm. groups. He was a hip hop dancer as well. But his first mm. um, role was a small role in um, Loretta Todd's feature film, Monkey Beach, which is also weirdly a, an adaptation of Eden Robinson's work, <laughs> Monkey Beach. Well, that's great. That's, that's a great little story again. But this was his um, first lead. And, and he yeah. just, I mean, that's a lot to ask a 17-year-old boy to carry a show like that. He was pretty mm. much in almost every scene in the entire six episodes. And, and he did it. And he just killed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a great job. He, he really did. Congratulations to finding him. <laughs> and, uh, and, and congratulations to him. Uh, good, good, good job for him getting the role. Yeah, he, he's yeah, it's amazing. I'm very happy for him and all of our young cast. They're they're all just beautiful and incredible. Now, of course, there's um, not, aside from the locations that you're shooting in, uh, and 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 what that entails. Uh, there's also the you know the elements that you're including in the film. Uh, there's um, I guess obviously you've got a you've got a talking raven uh, in the film, uh, and so there's some some special effects and and those kind of things that are that are being used. Oh, yes. And I think as you delve deeper into the series, we have some surprises. There's definitely monsters and creatures. I'm a big fan oh, yes. of uh, Guillermo del Toro and David Cronenberg. And so mm. definitely some of those influences in there, but with an indigenous twist. Yeah, you get that sense when somebody's dropping a, a lot of a, a big hunk of meat off their their lap into the garbage can. I'm going, okay, this, this is just the beginning of this thing. So that actually came from when I grew up um, at moose hunting season, yeah. all the, all the men are in the garage, like butchering moose. And it, mm. it, and I was making a joke to a friend going, you know, if you walk through my neighborhood at moose hunting season, it looks like we're all ax murderers because <laughs> there's just blood everywhere, big chunks of moose <laughs> hanging everywhere. And so we thought it would be funny to incorporate that in when you meet Sarah. But it is, but it's a neat uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of, a sense of what might be coming, right? Yes, that's what I got out of that. Yes. So, so great. Uh, what else can you tell us about about the series that uh, that we might experience as we get into the the story more? Well, I think what people can look forward to is that Jared is really battling two things. It's a collision of his real life, which is mm. sort of gritty and everyday, and the problems yep. of a seventeen year old kid just trying to go through school while also caring for his parents that aren't are more like friends than parents in some respects mm. and it's got its own set of dysfunction there but then you've yep. got this other side where he is really starting to learn about his culture in a way that is not just a regular learning about he's actually right. there's an onslaught of visions and things that happened yep. to him in his life where he starts to understand what it means to be the son of a trickster 
And really, he's an involuntary uh, participant off the top of the show because he doesn't know what's going on. He's questioning his own sanity. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think it's the idea is he just wants to be a regular kid. And mm-hmm. in some ways, you can almost equate that to this idea of assimilation. Oh, I'll just be normal. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll fly under the radar. I say normal <laughs> with quotation marks. I, yeah. I'm just going to fly under the radar. But what if you can't? And what if the things that start to show themselves to you, actually, at first, they seem scary. But as you get to know them, you realize there's power in that. And it's undeniable. And you have to step inside of it. And I think that's kind of, I'm using like a genre and a fantastical way to explore I think the things every Indigenous kid comes up against as they're growing into adulthood. Yeah, interesting for sure. Uh, I sure hope that, uh, I mean, from what I've seen, as I say, I wasn't able to to see all of it uh, for time restraints, but but it looked fabulous. Well done. Congratulations uh, on both fronts, both the Inconvenient uh, Indian and Trickster. Thanks. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you watching the work too. Oh, hey. uh, you know, it's it's a pleasure, and and I really appreciate. It. And congratulations to you for for all the success as well. And and you know, all the best to you in the future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and I look forward to actually meeting you in person at some point. It would be great. I hope we can do that. Gosh, I hope I hope that this world opens up so that there's much more in person <laughs> meetings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I I really like the way, by the way, at the end of that uh, the opening. Uh, 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 part one of the series where uh, the raven, as we as we talked, and that's a big raven, by the way. Was that was that the actual size of him? Uh, uh, yeah, it's sitting on the road. You're looking at so there, we had a, a real raven that's trained, and he was probably oh, the yeah. biggest raven. And then we yeah. created a VFX CG raven, which I think is a bit smaller. But the mm. raven's huge; they're big birds. Oh, they are absolutely. I know they're much bar- larger than a crow. You go out west, uh, the ravens are. Dis- <laughs> you can tell they're not. They're not a crow. They're a raven for yeah. sure. Um, a Cornus Corvac says he, as he refers to himself. Yes, which is <laughs> great. Uh, Michelle, again, a great pleasure speaking with you, and thank thank you for taking the time to uh, join us on the show. Thanks, I really appreciate it, David. Take care. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. That is Michelle Latterer, and uh, we've been speaking to her about uh, two things she's got going on: the uh, documentary "Inconvenient Indian." As we mentioned, that is uh, that is going to be. It had a, a debut over the weekend, but that is going to be uh, also uh, coming up at the uh, screens again on Thursday at 5 p.m. at the Tiff Bell Lightbox uh, Theater. And uh, Trickster, as we talked about, also, uh, that's going to be coming up... Um, it's coming up on the 15th, the uh, Tuesday of uh, September. Yeah. And, and of course, as we mentioned, it's going to be on CBC and CBC Gem uh, in October, starting on the 7th. So congratulations once again. Thank you for joining us and all the best. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. All right. Now, coming up next is a singer-songwriter and a founder of a new Indigenous record label, Ansley Simpson. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is certainly a pleasure to uh, be back on the air. We've had a bit of a break over the summer, so it's nice to be back. And it certainly is a pleasure to have with us on the program today 
Ansley Simpson, and uh, she, if you aren't aware, is a singer-songwriter, among other things. Ansley is also credited as being a speaker and now a label rep. She's got a new label. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, but a little more information about her music. Uh, she's, uh, she has very poetic lyrics uh, and deeply moving vocal-only performances, dreamlike arrangements. And uh, if you haven't heard any of her music, check it out. And you, I think, will agree that it covers all of those and ticks off all of those marks very nicely, I might imagine. And uh, she is also, she was nominated for two 2018 Indigenous Music Awards, winner of Best New Artist and the founder of the Indigenous label, as we just mentioned, Gizawi, or Gizaway, is it, which way is it pronounced? Gizaway. Uh, Gijiway. See, I got it wrong both ways. Gijiway. Thank you so much for correcting me on that. And her debut album was Breakwall, uh, and it's a gentle, powerful collection of songs that uh, showcases her lilting vocals, clear melodic sensibilities, and uh, intrinsic uh, guitar playing uh, to moving effect uh, very nicely. Ansley, it's very much a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to be talking about music again on, on the radio. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess... Um, Performing, how is performing these days? Is it, is it starting to get back into a place aside from online? Or there, have you been it to any places that you can perform now at all? It's interesting. I feel like we're at this um, transition place for live performances. I haven't done any other than closed venue space, which is mm -hmm. like a, a nicer version of a live stream where you don't have to do your own, you know, sound tech behind it. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, and mainly that's been with uh, Leanne Batasimasak Simpson, my sister, who's got an album coming out as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's slowly coming back. I'm really hesitant about going into a performance space, especially being in Toronto. I think I'm not alone there. Uh, I know a number of us, as far as musicians go, are sort of waiting to see. It's this extra stress of worrying about the health and safety of, uh, of the audience and our band members and everybody who works in the establishment, the sound mm. people, the bar staff, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm not anticipating doing a whole lot of shows um, until things are even more improved. Right. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, it, it's a good point you bring up because I guess what you were just alluding to there is that it, it, it's no longer just about a gig anymore, is it? it? It's about all of those things you talked about that we now have to take into consideration. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's part of performing is already a challenge for many performers, right? We always get nervous. We always get stressed out before the show. And so, we already have a lot to handle before we step onto stage and this extra um, stress actually just is, is too much for what I can imagine um, doing right now. So I like the idea of these, of the drive-in theaters. I think that one's mm. pretty cool. Um, mm -hmm. There's been some more interesting sort of live stream-ish shows that are combining things like um, visual elements to it. So I'm excited to see and to be a part of uh, the online shows that are doing something more than just me alone sitting in my living room, awkwardly hoping <laughs> that my tech doesn't fail and I freeze with like my mouth open for 25 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, yeah, hasn't that happened to everybody? <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> yeah, it's yeah. great. These 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 Zoom kind of you know uh, systems are are really not designed for artists. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but in a fix, you know, they work. Right? They do. They do. You know, this is how we're able to do most of what we're doing these days. So yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, you know, when you were talking there about, uh, and I guess, I guess we're talking about social responsibility. And I think that's something that, that I think you particularly are someone because of your sensibilities and because of your, the fact that you've started this new label, uh, you, you are, uh, you're thinking that social responsibility. I'm going back to that live gig thing, you know, where you have to think about, Hey, yeah, uh, maybe the club isn't you know, following all the rules, but you know, it's a gig. But I think that that for most artists, they're going to they're going to want to make sure that the club is following those rules, not just to have them in so that they can maybe pick up a few bucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the clubs are really the ones that I that I know of, and the ones that are actually still standing after this. Um, mm -hmm. I think are very very aware of what their responsibilities are. Um, but you know, you add alcohol in the mix and things can mm -hmm. go any which way. Um, True enough. yeah, so it's, it is, it's stressful still for sure. Yeah. You know, uh, Ansley, you've been performing for a number of years, but I understand that, um, you, you, you actually wrote and played instruments, uh, growing up in a, in a musical household. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, you didn't actually start playing, um, that long ago publicly. Yeah. yeah. My mom was a piano teacher. My dad is like really, really musical, plays all sorts of things. So I grew up with music being really prominent. Um, but uh, I developed anxiety in my early 20s. And that really, it was a big part of my life. And, and it really took a very long time before I could physically sing in front of anyone other than maybe a few close friends. Um, yeah, so I worked with a vocal coach, Mika Barnes, who actually was almost more like a therapist that worked <laughs> through voice and just sang through the anxiety. So most of my early lessons were just painful to witness, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but it taught me the skills to be able to sort of take space and find my voice literally because it used to be just very, very airy. Um, while still experiencing or holding anxiety. So now, you know, for the most part, my anxiety takes, um, it, you know, it's there, but it's small and it's in the background. Um, yeah, but that, that really held me back from being able to write or perform for, for a very, very long time. Yeah, um, and I guess uh, you were alluding to going back into clubs. Does that anxiety still play any any? Does uh, it still try and, and uh, you know, tap you on the shoulder occasionally in, in, in situations or is that gone now? Oh, no, for sure. It's still there. <laughs> um, I don't know one person that's made it through this pandemic so far and mm. has had an improved mental health situation. <laughs> um, and I know for sure for me, uh, my anxiety gets stronger the more that I isolate and stay inside. Mm. Um, and it comes, it's louder and speaks to me in a louder voice when I'm outside of my house. So, uh, it's gotten stronger since lockdown and has been more of a challenge and I've been working on it and it's been improving, but it's definitely there. And I, I wonder, you know, what it will be like to manage and what it will feel like to perform. So I'm sort of thankful for these, um, empty room gigs like, uh, mm. that, that are happening, 
where you're in a nice venue space and it feels a lot like a live show, but you don't have the added pressure of a um, of an audience sitting right there. So mm -hmm. that's sort of excellent for me, stepping out of anxiety or, or minimizing that again and starting to take up, um, you know, the stage again, so to speak. Right. Right, right, nice. Yeah. Well, um, so listen, you you put out the album. It, it was successful. Uh, you, you've gotten a lot of great reviews. And um, now, the thing is, you're coming out with a second album. If it hasn't come out yet, it's coming out very soon, I understand. It is. Well, this has been the fun, fun game of trying to figure out how to release an album <laughs> and then... You know, pandemic hits. Uh, mm. My it was supposed to actually come out last May, um, mm. and the day that the tickets were to go on sale for the release show, the pandemic was announced. So <laughs> that got put on hold. Um, and I think, like like every musician and every label right now, everyone's kind of waiting to see what what will happen. Um, this is not an easy time to be. Uh, taking up space in a lot of ways. So I really mm. find that when you're releasing something into the world, uh, artists are now questioning and audiences are questioning, okay, well, why Why do I want to hear this right now? Um, mm. What is this saying to me? Is this even grabbing my attention? A lot of people just want to listen to nostalgic music because that's comforting mm. and we know it. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of been waiting uh, to see when it's time for this album to be out in the world in mm. a way that people will be able to listen to it and absorb it and take it in. So uh, I'm anticipating that that's gonna be in uh, the first few months in 2021 at this point. And that's where right. I've got my focus and my team working towards. So, but right. honestly, anything is up in the air uh, or everything is up in the air right now as far as, as putting something like a full album out into the world. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of that, thank you for, for filling us in and bringing us up to date on, on that album. And it's going to be called? It's called She Fell From the Sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I understand it's kind of like a concept album as well. It is. It's an 11-track story album um, that I started writing probably four years ago now. <laughs> that seems like such a long time, but that's <laughs> when it was happening. And I remember writing the first couple of songs and, and recognizing that they kind of linked together. Um, and they had like these characters that I kept really, really visualizing and seeing. One of them, Gijigokwe, Sky Woman, um, and then her daughter, Winona, a rock painter character. And I started realizing as I kept writing more and more songs, oh my goodness, there's a narrative here. And if I just shuffle this song, you know, to track three, it fits in beautifully with this storyline. Uh, so yeah, it's sort of this, um, this story that unfolds involving uh, two individuals wanting to ask Sky Woman to fall again, because maybe if she fell again, she could bring that creative force back and maybe we could heal all of the issues with the planet and, you know, with the world, with mm. that energy and start again. And sort of, you know, it's not a well thought out plan and it doesn't go according to plan. And so the tracks kind of build to this really big destructive point in the middle. And then from that point on, uh, it's about rebuilding and restoring things based off of indigenous principles and indigenous ideas uh, and indigenous stories. So in this weird way you know writing this album four years ago uh i feel kind of like we're living it now 
um, mm. in a mm. very real way. Yeah. So right. that's that's really interesting on one hand and kind of exciting and sort of dreadful. And um, it's all of it is sort of leading up to this this anticipation around how it's going to be listened or heard when it's out sure. in the world. I hear what you're saying. It sounds fascinating. And uh, congratulations you. and look forward very much to hearing that. It does really sound very intriguing. And like you said, very timely on many on many fronts. Uh, I can't wait to hear how you've treated the production on this as well. Oh, yeah. I worked again with um, James Bunton, who has become a really good friend of mine. I like the way he goes about um, music and I've learned a lot from him. So the production on this one, uh, it kind of ranges a full spectrum. Like we go from very close, just acoustic vocal tracks to really big um, produced tracks that have an explosive kind of quality to them. Mm. It drops down into an ambient song at one point because I just really felt like it needed a palate cleanse, so to speak, or something mm. to soothe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that as an artist was absolutely um, great to be able to tackle this like you know okay what do i feel needs to be there and how do i want the production to work with this and you know yeah that's one of the that's one of the beauties of working as more of an independent musician is that you kind of get to do whatever you want um as an artist you don't have a label sort of breathing down your neck and uh deciding these things for you or guiding the process in a in a you know in a different way uh, that leads us into the next part uh, that we want to touch base on, your um, your label. But before we get there, I just want to let everyone know you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 or 95.7 and uh, ELMNT and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our guest here with us on Moment of Truth is Ansley Simpson. It's been a pleasure having her on the show so far. It's been very interesting. And uh, Ansley, you mentioned a couple of things. One, you mentioned narrative. Uh, and, and two, you mentioned independent artists. And, and that brings us to, uh, you know, the, the real focus of, of what we wanted to talk about. And that is your, your new record label. And uh, give me that name again. How did you say that? It's called Gijiwe, which Gijiwe. means uh, it's an Anishinaabe word that means to yes. speak or sing with a loud voice. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, now that's interesting in itself. I, I think it's interesting on a couple of fronts. One, because of what you just explained about your anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> and, and two, um, what you were just saying about being an independent artist. Now, from listening to your material, I, I, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong but I would think your music would fit into the mainstream very well. However, I get the sense that what you're, you're looking at and what, why you decided to start this label for yourself and for Indigenous artists was what you just referred to earlier, is that, that, that um, the, the sensibilities we were going back and talking about earlier, and that is that maybe uh, there are some indigenous elements, or maybe there's an indigenous approach I want to take, or maybe there's some indigenous people I want to involve, or maybe I want to go and promote this on, uh, on communities and mainstream, uh, 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 labels don't necessarily understand or want you to go in that direction. They want it. They want to push you somewhere else. Yeah, that was that was very much my experience um, as I was talking with different labels that were interested in putting um, She Fell From the Sky out. 
um, it felt very much like I had to hand over this completed project, this, I, that, that um, really I felt more like a participant in. The story, once it became written, really became, had a life of its own and a spirit of its own. Um, and that began to dictate really clearly how, how this album needed to be released in the world. One of the problems that I ran into, I didn't think it was a problem, but the labels did, um, is that I, I really needed this album to be released differently. It didn't feel right to put traditional story elements um, out into the world on streaming platforms that were really, really passive like Spotify so that it just popped up in a chill algorithm and suddenly you're hearing these, the spiritual content at what felt completely out of context for, you know, that I didn't feel responsible to do that to the story and to the mm. elements, the traditional elements in this. So, of course, when you walk into a label and say, yeah, I want to release this album, but I don't want it up on Spotify, um, <laughs> they laugh, really. Mm. Um, mm. And it becomes this, uh, ins this, this, this struggle of trying to educate on why I wouldn't want traditional elements to be passively consumed and that I want them to be... Uh, I feel a responsibility that they're out in the world in a good way so that people can interact with them consciously um, out of choice and listen to them differently. Uh, so that was one of the major reasons or uh, original kind of rubs that I had with the industry. And then I started recognizing and just sharing my story with other Indigenous musicians. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I really just wanted to do a whole tour on reserves. But like, mm -hmm. I'm going to do this tour in Europe first, right. um, where they did, you know, we have no real connection to Europe except through colonization kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't, I'm not that excited about it, but it feels like I'm, I'm obliged to do it out of the, out of what the label has set up to make me successful. So, you know, starting this label really made me dive in and sort of think about where my values are as an indigenous musician and where others may be from different nations and from different, you know, indigenous backgrounds. Uh, and I started realizing that the way that we even uh, talk about success for ourselves personally mm. is so different than the settler music industry. Um, and that often our dream, you know, my dream release would involve doing a, a tour on reserves. It, and, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't mm -hmm. involve filling uh, you know, bars full of settlers and then feeling like, again, I have to explain or or refuse to explain, you know, my material. Um, when you play for an Indigenous audience as an Indigenous musician, it's like, it feels so good because sure. you don't have to go into that. You just feel right. warmly received. So, yeah, it's that was part of the main reason why I wanted to start this label. Yeah, and I understand completely what you're saying there. You just mentioned alcohol, and I guess that's that's one of the other things that could be considered so disrespectful, I guess, in many ways, right? I, I know uh, so many uh, artists that, that want to have, uh, you know, the area smudged or something before they, they start the performance, and... Um, mm -hmm. And normally, you know, you don't have alcohol in, you know, around when you're doing these kind of things. And there's always there's always these brush ups with, with things that, that happen like that. You know what this sounds like? This sounds like, uh, Anthony, like like this is the start. And, and this has been going on for quite a, a number of years, as you know, with artists and mm -hmm. indigenous artists about performing and about doing these things. Because, oh, I think I have to do this um, or, or that's what the, the, the label wants me to do. Um, and you don't. You don't want to become, uh, you know, somebody that is uh, 
abrasive or not saying we don't appreciate what you're doing for us. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's reciprocal, like it's uh, it's always driven from the other side kind of thing. Yeah. This, this feels like it's part of an education and it feels like it's part of that ongoing education that we now have happening with maybe truth and reconciliation that you know this is something that the the labels may not recognize right now but maybe in a few years after they see that hey maybe you know indigenous artists aren't coming to us anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, how come um well because uh, they're starting their own labels they're doing the things that they want to do because it represents them better um do you do you think maybe that's the path we might be heading towards that's a path that i get really excited about honestly i want to see more uh indigenous labels i want to see um or indigenous collectives around mm. music and art and dance you know labels again do we i think a lot of us are really asking do we even need them Um, You know, moving forward, I've been an independent musician for years. Um, We talk a lot these days about how the music industry has really crumbled. And so the image that I keep coming up with is that the gatekeepers are now kind of standing at the gates, but the walls have been crumbled, you know, around them. So what's the point of going through the gatekeeper? Mm. now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I approach um, the idea of starting a label, what I was thinking, first and foremost, is that I wanted to help um, help sort of indigenous artists in general figure out the aspects of the music industry that are sort of formally locked into those labels. Like, how mm. do I put a song out into the world? How do I get the correct IRC codes so that I can track my royalties? How many? Ro- how much am I going to get from royalties anyway? <laughs> um, a lot of this is really hidden to the average musician. Yep. So uh, I'm hoping that Gajiwe can act as a bit of a um, an a learning opportunity for other indigenous artists. I really want artists to understand these aspects of the industry that um, are often seen as roadblocks to being able to further their careers. Uh, and the more that an artist understands the industry side of it, um, the less time they have to actually focus on it, but the more sure. opportunities that they have um, that they can make moving forward that aren't exploitive of their talents or of mm. their indigeneity or of mm-hmm. their music in general. Right. And, and that's, uh, that's a wonderful idea uh, to turn this into some kind of an educational component so that, like you said, many artists do not understand the business side. They just want to make music. They just want to perform. They just want to do, get into to their art. And uh, there is that business side of things. And let's be honest, they're going to brush up against that at some point, no matter what they do. They will need to know these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I'm hoping that at least, uh, you know, as as I move on and as I build this label, um, that, you know, the artists that I work with leave the, the experience with a lot more knowledge and a lot more understanding um, and a lot more power to make decisions in their life so that they can put their art forward mm-hmm. instead of thinking about the commerce side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Ansley, how has this been going with you so far? You started this label when? It's very recent. I just started it back in, um, well, our first release was July. Uh, okay. I worked with my sister, actually, Liam Batasimus X Simpson. She has a book that just came out, Nopoming, and we had been working together on this small EP that was just sort of like a okay, we've got a lot of time on our hands. What can we do uh, Mm. at a distance? What can we do that's creative? Um, And we had sort of worked on these tracks for a while. 
And she had found excerpts from her book that read beautifully over top of it. So we just went forward with that. And then I started thinking that that's a really good sort of first project to put out um, to work the bugs out because this is new to me. And uh, I wanna build sort of an audience and relationships with people before I can really feel like I can support indigenous artists in the way that they need Mm. to be supported. So Mm. these are sort of uh, the first couple of projects that I've got lined up are are about that. They're sort of about working the bugs out, uh, Mm -hmm. figuring out, how I want to be in this industry and how mm-hmm. Gijiwe should be in this industry. Right. And yeah, moving forward from there, hopefully with some interesting projects that are unlike what you find in the, the mainstream kind of settler labels. Right. I guess the, the other side of that is not only figuring out uh, Gijiwe, how that works, uh, what you want it to be sort of said, like you said, working out the bugs, but then the, you will have to work with maybe distributors, you may have to work with other mainstream uh, markets uh, to, to promote, et cetera, et cetera. So there will be that side of it that will, uh, that will also you'll have to be exploring. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, I think one of the, the things that I noticed that as an Indigenous music, musicians, we often um, forget about our own networks, our own radio stations, our own, um, our own connections in this industry, which is actually getting bigger every year. I've found that when I've helped other people work with, uh, their releases before I founded this label, um, that that was actually as valuable, if not more so than, uh, the sort of settler music industry connections and distribution that almost the, the, the distribution line that we have set up right now, um, it can sometimes feel like you're just tossing things into a void. Um, it's, it's the industry has changed so much, especially with the pandemic that all of these, uh, what we thought were really solid chains of, of revenue have just really crumbled. Absolutely. So, um, even my colleagues, so to speak, in other other labels are really scratching their heads at how and how to go about releasing something and how to even handle distribution when people aren't in physical stores or, you know, vinyl. Everybody wants to do vinyl, but that has taken a huge hit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and now no one's playing shows. So we're not we don't have merch tables set up. We don't have ways to easily distribute you know, these sort of things. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's a new industry that's coming out of this for sure. And so I couldn't agree more with you about what you just said about the, the networking and about, you think of all the artists, you think of all, like you said, the communities across the country, you think of all the, the, the the indigenous artists, you think of all the uh, community radio stations. There is a huge network of, of people, artists, uh, I, I, you know, right from start to finish. I don't, I don't see why we couldn't have our own industry. I, I, and, and I agree. I, I, don't, I wish we would have done this a long time ago. Absolutely. And I think it should have been done a long time ago. So uh, congratulations for you on starting this. And I wish you all the best with it as well. We look forward to hearing uh, your music. I guess that's going to be on your, your label as well, for sure. Yes, it will. Yep. And of course, uh, you know, just all the best with these future things. We look to forward to hearing more about it. I uh, want to hear about the successes you're having, any new, uh, new, new artists that you are, are premiering or that you're launching. Uh, please let us know. We'd lo- love to help uh, promote that as well. Absolutely. Chimigwich for talking today. This has been, this has been really great. Yeah, Jimmy Gwetch for being on the show with us. We really appreciate it. And like I said, uh, we are uh, we are proud to uh, 
try and support any way we can. And this is a great idea. So congratulations and all the best with it. Thank you. Yay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ansley Simpson, she is a Toronto-based Anishinaabe speaker. She's from the Alderville First Nation, and uh, she's speaking to us about her new label, as well as her new album, and, and many of the things that she's been doing. Gizwe is the name of it, and that is Sing with a Loud Voice. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have her on the show, and of course, it's been a pleasure to have you listening to the program right here on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Until next time, we'll see you then. <laughs> This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.